Welcome to Discovering You, a podcast that explores the intricacies of personality and how it impacts the way we navigate through life. What will you discover today? Hi, listeners. Hi, Heather. Hi there. Today, we're going to probe the concept of optimism and whether or not it's always a good thing. Also, if you're not naturally optimistic, can you learn to be? But first, since January is the month that has International Flower Day, it's DISC expressed through flowers. Fur D, Snapdragon. Like the mythical creature, they symbolize strength and sometimes deviousness. A high eye, daffodils, cheerful, a symbol of positivity and new beginnings. Remember, eyes are starters. High S, iris representing wisdom and trust, like the mentor, supporter roles that high S's embody. And for high C, Dahlia, described as graceful, strong, and the petals appear to fit perfectly on the flower head. You can check out the photos of this on my social media. So back to the topic at hand. Heather, would you say you're in an optimistic mood today? So to be honest, I probably would have said I wasn't until we had our chat before we started the episode. And now I feel in a very optimistic Aww, mood. I love that. <laughs> did you do your mood meter score? I did. Okay. So where are you on the mood meter? And let me just say, listeners, if you're new to the podcast, you can check out episode six, which is EQ part two. And that's where we really talk about the mood meter and what it's all about. So check that out if this is new to you. Again, I did the mood meter before we started Mm -hmm. and I was chill and calm. So moderate energy. Okay. Well, that doesn't sound too, too bad. (laughs) I feel differently now. Good. For me, I was at kind of moderate energy level. I'm just getting over a cold, which I think is why. But it's interesting because the word that it gave me was hopeful and sort of a calm, pleasant energy. But I think it's really interesting that I would get hopeful today because this is going to come up in the subject that we're talking about. Let's establish some definitions for what we're going to be discussing. Optimism is generally defined as hopefulness and confidence about the future or the success of something. Pessimism is a tendency to see the worst aspect of things or believe that the worst will happen. You may have noticed in past episodes that I don't tend to use the term pessimism. I use realism, which is probably because that's how I view myself. And this is defined as the attitude or practice of accepting a situation as it is and being prepared to deal with it accordingly. My main source for this topic, including the assessment we're going to discuss, is from Martin Seligman, who is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the former president of the American Psychological Association, director of the Penn Positive Psychology Center, and he's considered to be the father of positive psychology. Seligman believes that some of us are born optimists, so we're just naturally seeing the positive, fun, and hope in situations. And then conversely, some of us are born pessimists, always inclined to doubt, worry, and see negative outcomes. What Seligman has spent most of his career studying and teaching is a concept he calls learned optimism. Yes, he believes optimism can be learned. He defines optimism and pessimism as habits of thinking, and that contrary to what was believed before the late 60s, these habits can be learned and therefore changed. 
People's explanatory styles play a huge role here, meaning how someone thinks of and explains the cause of challenges and adverse events. Seligman refers to these as attributional styles, and he developed an assessment to measure the relationship between explanatory styles and optimism. I'll explain these styles in more detail shortly, but we're going to do a mini version of the questionnaire first so you can gain a sense of whether you're answering optimistically or pessimistically. The link to the full attributional style assessment is in the show notes, so you can access it there. For now, we're just going to do six quick questions. Okay, ready? Here we go. Number one, you lose your temper with a friend. You attribute this to, one, they're always nagging me. Two, they were in a hostile mood. Number two, you win an athletic contest. One, I was feeling unbeatable. Two, I trained hard. Number three, your stocks are at an all-time low. One, I didn't know much about the business climate at the time. Two, I made a poor choice of stocks. Question four, your doctor tells you that you are in good physical shape. One, I make sure I exercise frequently. Two, I'm very health conscious. Number five, you buy your spouse a gift that they don't like. One, I don't put enough thought into things like that. Two, they have very picky taste. And number six, you win the lottery. One, it's pure chance. Two, I picked the right numbers. I'm not going to reveal the answers yet because they're going to make much more sense when I explain something that Seligman calls the three Ps. But for transparency and relatability, Heather and I are going to have a chat about our results. Okay, Heather? (laughs) Sounds good. For me, my scores ended up coming out with comments like average. So average on good events, average on bad events. And then overall, you get kind of a hopeful score, which is funny because I alluded to my mood meter saying that today. And I guess so my score here was moderately hopeful. Not super dramatic, I guess, average. And obviously, I have some optimism, but doesn't come off super, super optimistic. How about you? I like to think of myself as an optimistic pessimist. I think that's hilarious. And I totally get that. To connect this to DISC, Heather, we both have low I's and high C's. And I think that combo tends to fit people who are described as realists. Speaking for myself, I'm not going to jump right into something with full abandon. I'm going to be cautious, skeptical, analytical. What would you say about you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a realist. Okay. I think there are areas where I am pessimistic, where I'm cautious and I do research and I do all things, but there Mm. are other things where I'm super optimistic and this is going to be fine. Okay. I think that probably reflects pretty similarly to my profile, my disc profile. It does. Sometimes I think I'm a C, sometimes (laughs) I'm a D. Well, there you go. That you And you described it because, like I said, I don't jump into anything like that. And that's because you have a much higher D than I do that I think you're willing to assume some type of risk for a reward, whereas I'm, that's really tricky concept for me. (laughs) Well, and even things that are not black and white on paper, I don't know that it's not true. So Mm. I'm going to go with it. Fair point. I don't need the facts necessarily. As long as there's something that doesn't prove it wrong, then I'm happy to. You're happy to go with it. Go with it until proven otherwise. Oh, well, you know what? That's a pretty optimistic outlook. I have my moment. (laughs) (laughs) I feel that, you know, with the combo I was just talking about with the low I and high C, I think this also describes my Enneagram type. I'm a type one, which is known as the perfectionist or reformer. 
And this is all about working to high standards, avoidance of mistakes, a strong focus on details and rules. This doesn't exactly sync up to freewheeling optimism, does it? Okay, but I just have to stop you right there for one second. Okay. The whole rule following thing, I have experienced when we pulled up to the Schitt's Creek Hotel, you <laughs> ran in with reckless abandon to take pictures and <laughs> I did not. And the person we were with, I won't name any names, left their car running. Oh my so gosh, you're I so do right. think <laughs> I do think that sometimes you have freewheeling optimism that that was just going to be fine or it was worth the risk. Oh my God, that's so funny. I never even thought of that, but thank you for putting that into perspective. Yeah, clearly when I think it's worth it, I will do it. And so yeah, for Schitt's Creek and Dan Levy, 100%, no rules needed. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think high eyes are going to score better in these scenarios. And ironically, it's because of something that often trips them up, which is personalizing things. They may answer in the mindset of, I was good at that. Whereas a high C will say something like, oh, well, the conditions for success were favorable, a more analytical approach. Also, C's being perfectionists and Enneagram type ones are more likely to deliberate about their answers, be brutally honest, and hold themselves accountable. Because they tend to be harder on themselves, this contributes to receiving a more pessimistic score. With high I's and low C's, they're going to answer reflexively, not giving it a ton of thought, but what feels right in the moment. This is also going to affect the score. I'm outing myself here, and I need to have a mini rant about one of these questions. Actually, I have several, but I won't digress. And this is the high C logical realist part of me. So for that last question, winning the lottery, do you remember the options? It was one, it's pure chance, or two, I picked the right numbers. So which do you think is the optimistic answer? Is it just me or did you have a hard time separating reality from theory? I couldn't make myself choose the second option, even though I knew it was likely the optimistic answer, because there's no way I can accept that the lottery is anything but chance. But, and this might be a stretch, it is for me, technically, both answers are right. Because in this particular instance of winning the lottery, you did pick the right numbers, didn't you? Did that trip you up too, Heather? I'll be honest, I didn't put nearly as much thought into it as you did. <laughs> Enough. I do agree that it's pure chance. So I stopped there. Okay. Well, we'll see how you feel when the scoring comes up and you see what the optimistic <laughs> answer was. See, I feel that some of these questions blur the lines between optimism and delusion. Also, a lack of accountability because some of the optimistic answers come at the expense of personal responsibility. Instead of you doing something different, it's someone else's fault. But, you know, maybe that's just my lens as a realist. The gist of what Seligman's saying is that when we attribute failure to internal, fixed, and personal factors, this gives us a pessimistic outlook. When we attribute it to external, more transient circumstances, this leads to an optimistic viewpoint. The same happens with positive outcomes, but the other way around. So seeing success as being due to stable, internal factors is optimistic but attributing it to temporary or uncontrollable causes is pessimistic. Seligman further explains his theory using what he calls the three Ps. So their personalization, pervasiveness, and permanence. Permanence is about time. For example, if you say something like, I'm not good at remembering birthdays, 
that's pessimistic because you're seeing it as permanent and about something in you. There's a sense of helplessness. I'm not good. So people who think good things have temporary causes tend to see things pessimistically. Those who think good events have permanent causes are optimistic and thrive even more after they succeed. They're refueled and believe in even more possibilities. When experiencing failure, optimists will recover faster, whereas it will really knock pessimists back for a while, maybe even permanently in the area where the failure occurred. They may not want to try it again. The next P is pervasiveness, and this is about space. For pessimists, when one thread of their life snaps, the whole fabric unravels. They tend to catastrophize. They see one bad thing leading to another, and another, and on it goes. They believe in universal explanations and may give up on everything when a failure happens in one area. Whereas optimistic people don't allow the setback to infiltrate into the other areas. Seeing things as temporary and specific are signs of hope, whereas seeing things as permanent and universal can lead to despair. The third and final P is personalization. It controls how you feel about yourself. When bad things happen, those who blame themselves internalize, they feel worse, more depressed, more pessimistic, versus those who blame circumstances or others don't lose self-esteem and generally feel better about things. Having said all that, I'm now going to go back to the questions and reveal what they were measuring, and you can see what the optimistic answers were. All right, so the losing the temper with a friend. What this was measuring was bad permanence, saying they are always nagging me or they were in a hostile mood. The hostile mood was the optimistic answer there. Did you get that, Heather? I picked the optimistic answer. Okay. It's still a little hard to wrap my head around, though. I know. This is a really complex subject for sure, so I'm doing my best trying to break it down, but there's, there's a whole wealth of information here. Okay, number two, you win an athletic contest. What this was measuring was good permanence. Your options were feeling unbeatable or training hard. The optimistic answer was the training hard. I think you got that one too, Heather. Yeah, I also chose optimistic on this one. The next one was your stocks are at an all-time low. So this was measuring bad pervasiveness. Your options were not knowing much about the business climate at the time or making a poor choice of stocks. And the optimistic answer here was making the poor choice of stocks. I chose the pessimistic answer on this one. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just put a pin in saying pessimistic for anybody that's listening to it. And if this is happening to yourself as you're scoring, don't worry about that. I, I have a different take on the word pessimism, and I'm going to get to that shortly. Don't despair if that's the case. Okay, four, your doctor tells you you're in good physical shape. This was measuring good pervasiveness. Your options were. I make sure I exercise frequently, or I am very health conscious. And the optimistic answer here was that I am very health conscious. I don't even remember what I said. I actually think I chose the other one. So there you go. Yeah, I did too. Okay, you buy your spouse a gift that they don't like. That was looking at bad personalization. The options were not putting enough thought into things like that, or they have very picky taste. <laughs> the optimistic answer was they have very picky taste. And here's where I had my rant about not taking accountability or blaming others, but we'll leave that for now. And then number six, of course, was the lottery being either pure chance or picking the right numbers. Picking the right numbers was the optimistic answer. And I think we all know how I feel about that question. <laughs> Seligman does add a caveat. 
thank God, because I think it's extremely <laughs> important. And I'll tell you why in a moment. The caveat is that while there are clearly good results and benefits from learned optimism, you have to be careful of the potential dangers of externalization. If you're always blaming other people or circumstances, this can remove personal responsibility and it will work against you. The intent is not to avoid taking responsibility for your troubles, but to keep your troubles from negatively impacting your life. When it's put this way, I can get on board. You want to strive to find a balance between external and internal factors. I think it's necessary to flag this idea of untethered optimism because it's something that comes up often in the work I do with emotional intelligence. Many of my clients are surprised by the implications of their, I'm doing air quotes here, score. Most of us are conditioned to think a high score equals a great result. Not so on the EQ questionnaire. One of the most challenging things for me to convey to a client is that having a high optimism score can be potentially problematic. Why is this? If you're overly positive and cheerful with your colleagues, they may feel that you're not really listening to them or understanding what they are going through. If someone is feeling down or struggling with an issue and you rattle off a couple of cheerful platitudes, it's likely not going to go over super well. They may see you as lacking empathy and being unrelatable. Another way that an overly optimistic outlook can impede you is that when you're always expecting the best, you may miss some cues or warning signs that something is amiss. And others may see you as being naive. One of the benefits of being skeptical in business or life in general is not being taken advantage of. Some people take a lot of pride in being hyper aware and never falling prey to a scam or being played. But others, optimists, high eyes, Enneagram type sevens, view that attitude as cynicism and they would rather be open to all possibilities and will choose to remain that way, even if it means that occasionally they get duped. I have a really timely example of this. Heather, have you watched The White Lotus? Uh, I haven't watched it, and it's been on my list for a while now. Okay, you got to watch it. I'm talking about season two here. Listeners, if you haven't watched it, it's really juicy. And spoiler alert, I will say this, and I'm still going to be really careful and cryptic because I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but there's a character. And this person finds out that they have been played. But honestly, they seem rather unfazed by it. And based on their disposition in the finale, I would predict that they're going to carry on being this way. If you know, you know. <laughs> the key element to changing your outlook is in the permanence factor. If you believe the cause of your problems is permanent, for instance, having thoughts such as, I'm not smart, or I'm unattractive and lack talent, then you won't act to change it. Versus if you think the cause is temporary, you can act to change it. Do you see how that shift in thinking makes a difference? You may recall this type of reframing from the episode where I discussed Carol Dweck's work with fixed and growth mindsets and the power of yet. A fixed mindset would think, I'm not smart enough to figure this out. The growth mindset would say, I haven't figured it out yet. If you want to hear more about this, you can check out episode nine. Seligman points out that optimism is a tool to help, but it shouldn't be used across the board. There are times where a more pessimistic style is appropriate. See, this is what I was talking to. Don't worry if you were getting some pessimistic answers there. He identifies these times by saying, if the cost of failure is low, use optimism. The thinking being, what do you really have to lose? He uses an example of someone who is making sales calls and feeling discouraged when they're not going well. 
What's the harm in making one more? That one could be the one that's success. And even if it's not, it's not that big of a deal. But if the cost of failure is really high, then optimism is not ideal. His example for this is a pilot, considering if the weather warrants the plane to be de-iced. If the pilot takes an optimistic view of, oh, it'll probably be fine. (laughs) I can't even say this lightheartedly. How horrifying. Can you imagine? The cost of that mistake is way too high. Taking a more pessimistic view, the weather could get worse. The wings could be weighed down by ice. I think we can agree would be better in this scenario. Here's hoping all our pilots are pessimists, everyone. (laughs) Seligman uses the term flexible optimism, which is optimism with your eyes open, knowing when it's appropriate or not. Personally, I like that Seligman himself is not a natural optimist and is also a self-described catastrophizer. I find this more relatable and more hopeful than if he was a naturally optimistic person. He references how he jumped to the worst-case scenarios when COVID hit, but with learned optimism, he was able to steer his thoughts in a more positive direction. Okay, I'm going to put out a theory or explanation for why I think people may see things less optimistically. If it's future-facing, there's the part of me that feels that it's tempting fate to have a fully positive outlook. So I'm not sure if this is a combo of my inner worrier, my superstitious Irish (laughs) nature. It's kind of like a don't count your chickens before they've hatched kind of scenario. Does that make sense to you, Heather? Yeah, it totally makes sense. It's not how I operate, but it makes sense to me. Okay. It could be a self-protective measure, right? Like I don't think we should paint broad strokes across those who don't see perpetually sunny skies on the horizon. Let's try and figure out why that's their outlook. I'm always trying to unravel the reasons behind behavior, not to excuse it, but to explain it. If you're interested in exploring learned optimism techniques, you can check out Seligman's book called Learned Optimism, How to Change Your Mind and Your Life. Okay, before we get into the listener question, I just am thinking out loud here. I think there's a balance because I can think of two people in my life that I know that are eternal optimists. Okay. And they're always smiling and they're always happy and they always, those text messages are always like so happy. And there's a part of me that doesn't believe them, Mm. that there's no way. And again, this could just be me. There's no way that that's authentically a person who can be that optimistic all the time. Right. And on the other end of the spectrum, if you're that pessimistic all the time, you know, it can't function that way either, right? Be like finding a balance. Totally agree. And that's something that comes up on the EQ assessment of kind of wanting to be in the middle, have average scores. And, you know, if you think of the, is the glass half full or half empty? Maybe just, how about it's balanced? How about it's, <laughs> it's even? I think maybe that's what we should strive for. My husband says the glass is too big. <laughs> On to the listener question. On our last episode, the best of 2022, if you haven't checked it out, you totally should. We ask listeners what their favorite episodes were. The Enneagram and Reframing Introversion were the most popular. And one of the listeners asked if you were planning to do more episodes on those topics. Yes, definitely. The Enneagram is so complex and layered, so I would really love the chance to explore that more thoroughly. And coming up soon is something that's a bit of an offshoot of introversion. That's all I'll say for now, but stay tuned. If you're interested in connecting with Victoria for team building, strategic onboarding, coaching, or a speaking engagement, you can contact her at discoverwhatworks at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. 
Remember, send in your questions to be featured on a future episode and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app.